Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Novel. A listener note. This episode contains violence and content that some listeners might find distressing, including references to child abuse. Previously on Deliver Us from Herbal. I think by the time Herbal had died, I knew it really wasn't over because with such an unstable group, Founded on such erroneous principles, you never really know what to expect. I'm Gabriella LeBaron, and my father is Ervil LeBaron. This is the Book of the New Covenant. It's a manifesto of Ervil LeBaron. We had to be prepared to kill the people we loved the most. That was the only way to save their souls. They would be thankful to us in the end, because otherwise they would go to hell forever over our cowardice. Murder was sort of a natural thing with these folks. Dan goes off to do his business, drops his drawers, and two people walk up and shoot him in the head and in the chest with a nine millimeter weapon. Here's a murder and uh, just can't come up with anything. That's very frustrating. My name is Lucy. I was married to doing Shinoff. He said to me that, you know, past is past. When something very serious was going on, we would do those kind of heavy-loaded prayers. So that was the spirit that we were in in BFA in support of the 4 o'clock murders happening in the States. I never could believe that somebody would actually target a little girl like that. To me, it was just surreal. It was like, no, this can't be true. How can this happen? Who did it and why? We got kind of a description You know, it was a guy in a suit with a beard, which really didn't tell us a whole lot. I understand what it's like to live in a terrorist organization. I understand how mothers who strap bombs to their children feel. You know, it's the most horrific thing you could imagine. The choreographed killings of Eddie Marston, Mark Chinoth, Dwayne Chinoth, and his eight-year-old daughter Jenny quickly made national news in the summer of 88. And it didn't take police long to figure out they were all connected. In fact, Detective John Burmeister hadn't even returned from Rena Street, the crime scene of Dwayne and Jenny's murder. By the time we got back, everybody knew that this was something that was caused by a rift 
of fundamentalist Mormons. That was already going on in the office by the time we got back. A cop investigating the killing of Eddie Marston had seen the name Irville LeBaron in Eddie's case file and the details of a detective named Dick Forbes. He gave the detective a call, and Dick started telling him what he knew, which obviously was quite a lot. Dick also told the investigating cops they'd need to brush up on their religious history. I think everybody involved in the investigator picked up books and started reading up on it. And the actual early history of the Mormons was, well, that was some pretty bloody, violent stuff. The cops weren't just learning about early Mormonism and the doctrine of blood atonement. They were learning about Ervil LeBaron's cult, the murder of his brother Joel, the massacre at Los Molinos, the killing of Rulin Allred, and all the others. So many crimes. So many of them still open cases. Detective Burmeister realized their investigation in Texas was actually part of a much larger story. An incredibly bloody and dark one. A hunt that had begun in the 70s and was about to enter a completely new level of intensity. Primarily because of the murder Detective Burmeister had just caught. One of the victims, Jenny Chinoth, the kid unconnected to the cult. Her death had created the Jenny Task Force. Detective Burmeister was now joining cops like Steve Otecki and prosecutors like David Schwendeman, ramping up a federal investigation that started in the wake of Dan Jordan's killing. That still unsolved murder on the hunting trip in 97. The Jenny Task Force was an investigation that would reach out across America law enforcement agencies sharing resources and intelligence to track this new generation of the Ervil LeBaron cult, the kingdom of God, K.O.G. Just a few days after the four o'clock murders, in July of 1988, the Jenny Task Force met up. We all got together in Salt Lake. Salt Lake City, Utah. It made sense to do it in Salt Lake because that was kind of the heart of all of it the headquarters of the Mormon Church, and the spiritual home to most Mormon fundamentalists, including the LeBarons. It was also the home of Dave Schwendeman, the federal prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office, who had been involved in the LeBaron case ever since Dan Jordan was murdered. Schwendeman told the team assembled in Utah some chilling details from his case files. How this latest generation of the cult was carrying out vengeance Ervil had ordered before his death. In a book called The Book of the New Covenant, a scripture for the family, something that dictates to them how life should be. If you know how to read it, and if you have somebody in the family helping you interpret the book, you can find the hit list in the book, who's to die, who's not to die. Which meant, even with these latest tragedies in Houston and Dallas, the cult wasn't done. There's a hard core of these kids that are a little bit older that are converted really into full-on believers. They know nothing else. They were raised in this environment and are practice killers. They know how to assemble and disassemble firearms. They're practice liars. They're practice forgers. They're extraordinarily good at evading police detection. I mean, they're killing anybody that was a potential threat. They were doing away with them. Each other, family members. And they weren't ever being held to account. Dave set two goals for the task force. Number one, stop the killings. Arrest and prosecute the KOG's assassins. Number two, break the cycle. Find and locate as many of Ervil LeBaron's children as possible. Get them into stable homes to stop the spread of the cult's twisted dogma of blood atonement passing through future generations. Dave knew that for many of the assembled cops, this case would be different than any they'd worked, or likely would ever work again. In its scale and its intricacy, the mix of crime and religious doctrine. I said, I know this is complicated, but it is complicated. It's hugely complicated lives and this hugely complicated family that lived by crime, existing on the edge in just about every way you could think of 
but also doing a lot of it so they could prosecute these murders. David told all this to the assembled team, including John Burmeister and the other Texas cops. These are hardcore Houston homicide detectives who had not seen something like this. And it really struck them. It shook them to the bone. We then started looking at everything. Detective Burmeister and the team got to work. We studied up on what happened in other places and what the modus operandi was, how they did it. And they put a lot of thought into what they were doing. With these latest Texas killings, there was evidence to process, potential new clues, and possible witnesses. In fact, one had already come forward, a witness to the immediate aftermath of the murder of Dwayne and little Jenny, someone who was pretty sure they'd seen the assassins as they drove away. They told Detective Burmeister what they'd seen. There was one person in the car other than the person that got back into it. So there were two people present at the scene, and the shooter was wearing a suit, a dark suit, and had a beard. That's about it. Beard, short hair, dark suit. Just a general outline. It wasn't much, but it was a start. And the next leads for the Jenny task force weren't far behind. From the teams at Novel and iHeartRadio, this is Deliver Us from Herbal, Episode 12, The Tide Turns. Shortly after midnight on July 13, 1988, Detectives John Burmeister and Dick Forbes were sitting in a conference room at a police station in Phoenix, Arizona, and they were feeling pretty good. The investigation into Herbal LeBaron's cult hadn't had many lucky breaks since it began in the 1970s. But these two experienced lawmen couldn't dispute that they had one now. More than one, in fact. In front of them on the table were several piles of bagged evidence and some mugshots. Suspects they were increasingly convinced were involved in the four o'clock murders. Crucially, these were suspects who were at this very moment in custody in the same police station where they now sat, albeit for crimes unconnected to the four o'clock murders. It had all begun less than two weeks before. On the 1st of July, 88, a police officer was cruising along Black Canyon Road in Phoenix. He pulled into a parking lot of a place called the King's Inn Hotel, right off the interstate, a popular spot with car thieves. There in the lot, a 1987 black Chevy Silverado pickup with Texas plates sat shining in the Arizona sun. Something about it caught the cop's attention. And when he radioed in the license plate, bingo. The truck had been stolen in Texas just days before. The cops approached the clerk at the King's Inn front desk. Had he seen any guests that stuck out to him recently? Long shot in a cheap motel, but the cop was in luck. Some guests had caught the clerk's eye. The motel operator was kind of suspicious because you got all these kids that are about the same age, but it was just something wrong about this group of kids that all come together. They were all, well, clean-cut, well-mannered. In this rundown part of town, that was noticeable. The clerk said the driver of the Chevy Silverado had rented two rooms. Six people were staying with her at the hotel. When cops raided the hotel rooms, they found two spiral notebooks, a list of names, a cordless drill, ignition switches, and black silicone. The tools of car thieves. Plus, some other stuff. A bunch of evidence that nobody knew made any difference or sense to anybody at the time. Sensing they might have stumbled upon an international carjacking ring, they bagged the lot. The local cops thought they were about to make a big headline-generating bust. But when they swooped up the guests in the King's Inn Hotel and charged them, 
they had no idea what they'd really just stumbled upon. Just days after the four o'clock murders, most of the assassins caught on their way home to Mexico. The cops might have never known all this if it wasn't for the fake IDs the gang were using. Up until now, fake aliases had been one of the cult's main tools in successfully avoiding detection by law enforcement. In episode 8, Gabriella told me about how the cult created new versions of themselves whenever they moved to a new place. They were able to create official-looking documents to match these imagined new personas, mainly thanks to that cult member called Linda Johnson. Linda was a master forger. Yeah, she was good. She birth certificates would take her five minutes to make. In the 70s and 80s, cops didn't have access to nationwide linked computer systems or DNA databases. So whenever a cult member was arrested, their fresh identity made it look like a first offense. Hardest part's about tracking this family. They have all these birth certificates and different names. They have aliases up the kazoo. And once a cult member had posted bail under a fake name, they'd simply skip town before they'd been linked to other lives and crimes. It's what Heber had done following the disastrous bank robbery back in 86. But in the summer of 1988 in Phoenix, the KOG's assassin's mistake had been to reuse their aliases because the Jenny Task Force had checked all the hotels in Texas and found some familiar names. When you go in the hotel, you check in with your driver's license number and name, and we started figuring out who was here in Houston by the different names that they used at the hotels, and matching them up with the driver's license that they were using. And those same fake aliases were being used here in Phoenix, Arizona. So once the Jenny Task Force knew that, they had their suspects. Those mugshots they were now sitting in front of in the Phoenix police station. And then there was the bagged evidence in front of them, part of that King's Inn hotel room hall. I have the police report from that initial bust, and it lists these items as a false beard, a false mustache, empty shoulder holsters, Taurus 38 revolver, speed loaders, street guides, maps, a list of Texas police scanner frequencies. And then, amazingly, they found some newspapers that the kids had collected after they'd committed the murders in Texas and brought with them. As soon as they committed the murders, they went and bought all the newspapers and went to the hotel in Texas and read about what they'd done. And then they packed up and came to Arizona. For Detective Burmeister, this evidence hall definitely brought into question some of the hyperbole he'd heard from the other cops on this group being sophisticated and methodical assassins. Some of the stuff that they did, you know, having all that stuff in the car is dumb. You know, I mean, that's, and the, keeping the suits is dumb and keeping the beards is dumb. And actually, they didn't do a very good job at disposing of the weapons either. The evidence seemed like a gold mine that could crack the whole investigation wide open. When the cops left that Phoenix conference room to go and talk to their suspects, they must have felt like the dominoes were about to fall. But in the coming weeks, they'd crash against a familiar barrier. The same barriers every cop looking into the Herbal LeBaron cult had faced. No one would talk. Thanks to the haul from the King's Inn, the beards and wigs and newspapers documenting the crime, they had evidence connecting the LeBarons to the 4 o'clock murder. But they still didn't know exactly what had happened that day. Who did which hit? And crucially, who had killed Jenny? Everyone in custody remained impenetrable. A lifetime of training never to talk to cops. At one point, the cops thought they were making headway with Cynthia. They showed her grisly photos of Jenny taken at the crime scene. Cynthia was visibly shaken. But still, she wouldn't say a word. 
For Utah-based investigator Steve Votecki, these interviews were just as frustrating as the ones he'd done with the LeBaron kids following Dan Jordan's murder back in 87. And just like back then, the cops on the Jenny Task Force started feeling the heat. We could get intense with each other and, you know, just rant and rave or whatever. But when it came time to talk to a suspect, you had to be cool and calm. And it wasn't going to be possible to intimidate any of them into confessing because they'd been intimidated by experts in their family for years. And so it could get pretty intense. Months passed. 88 became 89. What had seemed like exciting new evidence that could bring the whole cult down Well, that feeling had given way to something else. A feeling homicide detectives like John Burmeister knew all too well. A case going cold. All we had was just indirect evidence. Even though it was physical evidence, we couldn't tie it to the murder. Even though we had beards and suits and all that, we had no idea who had them on. But at least their suspects in custody were going nowhere. Because while the Jenny Task Force had been failing to make progress, the Phoenix PD had moved forward with their car theft investigation. They didn't need the KOG's cooperation to bring charges on that. They had airtight evidence. In August of 1989, more than a year after the 4 o'clock murders, five members of the KOG pled guilty to auto theft charges. Heber and Doug Barlow were sentenced to 10 years in prison. Cynthia and Tarsa to five years. And Richard, who was 17 but was tried as an adult, was given three and a half years. Those working the Jenny Task Force were relieved some of the KOG leadership were behind bars. But they didn't have all their suspects. Aaron, Natasha, and Patricia, for example. They were all at large. On top of that, the car theft sentences would, in all likelihood, be significantly reduced for good time. Ten years could be five. Five could be just a few years. And then, they'd all be out. And back in Mexico, planning more murders. And this went against that central aim of Operation Jenny, to break the cycle of violence to stop future generations from becoming caught up in this fanatical dogma of killing in the name of God. They wanted to pull the children growing up in the cult away from it. The kids who had yet to become killers. Kids like Gabriela LeBaron, who, as the 80s turned to the 90s, was far from splitting from the cult's ideology. In fact, she was becoming more and more extreme. That's coming up after the break. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A when news of the four o'clock murders reached Gabriela LeBaron and the rest of the KOG at their remote Mexican hideout, BFA, the cult members were conflicted. On one hand, there was a muted rejoicing that God's will had been fulfilled. Dwayne and Mark Chinoth and Eddie Marston had marked themselves for death by betraying God's kingdom on earth. They were sons of perdition. And as such, they had to be blood atoned to be saved from an eternal hell. It was a form of mercy to kill them. But Jenny, the eight-year-old girl, she was innocent. Killing her cast a pall over the camp. Then word reached the BFA of the arrest in Phoenix. And as the months passed, it became clear that Heber, Doug, Richard, and Cynthia weren't returning anytime soon. We split into two different groups. I mean, not, we didn't split ideologically. Some kids went to the States to work and send us money. And then others were sent to Monterey, Mexico. Without Heber and Co. stealing cars and packing weed for the Mexican mafia, the KOG needed new sources of cash, badly to feed, house, and clothe the kingdom of God. So they went legit. We were getting out of the mafia trade, and we're going to go back into selling washers and dryers. Gabriella was just 13 years old in 1989. Without Heber and some of the others around to provide muscle and protection, working for the cartels had become too much of a risk. The mafia trade became too dangerous and crazy, right? You know, like, we had to get out of there. So why don't we try something else? They left BFA and the mafia town of Navajo and moved to Monterey, which today is one of the wealthiest cities in Mexico. Has a reputation for being safe, orderly, where you might go if you want to become legit. But... My experience in Mexico is money ran dry. We had no more money to eat. And we kind of went hungry for a while. We were... Literally just on beans, nothing else, not even salt. And once in a while, you can have a tortilla, half a tortilla. Gabriela and the other older kids decided they needed to get jobs. Gabriela spoke fluent Spanish and English. So the 13-year-old cult member became an English teacher. I put makeup on and high heels, and it was terrible. I was so ashamed. I was a tough person, not this one in makeup and heels. But I had to do it. Other siblings in Monterey also started teaching. And for really the first time in their lives, found they were interacting with the world outside their cult in a meaningful way. And then they became exposed. They found these older, wiser adults, really good-hearted people, who kind of took them under their wing and just started teaching them about the world and offering care and guidance and helping them to see And then a few years later, they were just like, okay, we're done with this. All of this is bullshit. So, fuck the KOG. All the hunger, all the terror, all the killing, and now they were just done with it all? Gabriella was incredulous. I wasn't on board. I was not going to let everyone off that easy. She convinced some of her siblings to not give up on God, on their father's wishes. She reminded them that the hardships of the cult were a test. What they needed to do was double down on their worship, try harder to reach God. So that's what we did, and we all went on something called strike. This was the beginning of something Gabriella's family calls the strike period. As in, strike against the outside world. We thought that God was cursing us 
for not, for not being good enough, for becoming too worldly. If you have a job in the world or if you have friends that are outside of the cult, you mingle in any way with anybody outside of the cult or flirt with boys or anything, wear the wrong kind of shoes and makeup and start being social, all that is worldly and bad and God will curse you. But the thing with us is that God didn't only curse us, okay? God cursed the whole world. It's like in the Bible, one person does something bad and they destroy the whole freaking city. Gabriella quit her teaching job. We needed to go on some missions. We needed to do it ourselves, even though all the adults were in jail now and we needed to carry on, continuing the murder spree, basically. So we did our solemn assemblies. We fasted for a week, prayed twice a day, did two solemn assemblies a day, which like each one is two or three hours long. So it's like all day long you're in prayers. It's terrible. This strike was a rejection against what they deemed as corrupt Western or American outside influences. The United States was definitely the big evil country. We all decided to know that all that is evil. All these things that everyone else is doing, their normal lives that people are living, all that is bad. Every part of it is bad. So don't even think of it. You can't talk to anybody. You can't have friends. And there was a point that we couldn't even study outside world books. So, you know, kind of like think of some extremist community saying, oh, everything Western is bad. Right? So burn it all. Gabriella and a few of her siblings rejected anything that represented the corruption of the world. One day, Gabriella and these siblings gathered up as many of these corrupting possessions as they could find and dumped them in a big heap in the backyard, doused them in gas. And then we burnt it all in a big bonfire. Literally burnt it all in a big bonfire? Literally burnt it all in a big bonfire. All of our shoes, anything that was worldly. And the whole idea here was to somehow, like, purify yourselves, get back in the graces of God? Yes, basically. And God needed to bless us, send us some sort of answer. Because we didn't have any answers. There was no communication from heaven. So we did the very best we could. We got rid of everything that was worldly. They were offering a sacrifice to God in the form of fire, a burnt offering similar to those mentioned in the Bible. Maybe by showing God they wanted nothing to do with the world at large, he would give them some kind of sign. No answer came, right? And no answer ever came. I think of teenage Gabriella staring into the flames of that Monterey fire, trying to make sense of the deafening silence from her God, the God she had obeyed so faithfully since birth. The God she and her family had given so much for, had taken so much from others for, a God who still would not even acknowledge their existence. And I wonder, did it feel similar to the way I felt when I prayed? Back when I believed, before my doubts had risen to the surface. Faced with such confusion, you reach down within yourself. Resolve you'll try harder to find a way to reach God. But maybe now it's me who's reaching to try to compare my own experiences with the extremities that Gabriella and her siblings had known since birth. Shortly after Gabriella quit her teaching job and went on strike against the outside world, she was presented with more earthly, practical concerns. We ran out of money. We ran out of food. We got kicked out of the house. And then we went to live in a shed on some pig ranch farm. So we lived in this shed, and there were these big giant rats everywhere and roaches. And since we didn't have money or food, we had to beg for food. We had to go to the mercado, like the open market, and take whatever rotten food that people were giving rid of and bring that home and cut off the wrong parts. 
no meat, of course, just fruits and vegetables. And that's what we would eat. Living among the rats in ruin, Gabriella must have felt like the kingdom of God had hit rock bottom. But it would turn out that there was further to go. It was now 1992, and across the border, the members of the Jenny Task Force were unaware of the cracks now splitting the KOG in Mexico. Dave Schwindemann, the federal prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Utah, had made little progress in either the Four O'Clock Murders or the San Pete County killing of Dan Jordan in 1987. But there had been some success in the second goal of the Jenny Task Force, finding stable homes for children born in the cult. In 1989, cops had raided appliance repair shops the KOG ran in Atlanta and Chicago. While the adults they arrested awaited trial on various charges, the kids working in the repair shops were put in foster care. We got material witness warrants for all of the kids, and then we brought them all to Salt Lake and then put them before the grand jury and did our interviews with them, spent lots of time with them. But as usual, these LeBaron kids wouldn't talk. When they did talk, they told us lies, and we knew they were lies, so it wasn't worth pursuing it. And the hopes that getting them in stable homes would break the spell of Irva LeBaron's dogma didn't last long. No sooner had the children of the KOG been put in foster homes that the cult's leadership tracked them down and helped them flee. And then they just disappeared. Go back. Go back to Mexico. Dave Schwindemann was facing the most difficult case of his career. These are encapsulated communities, difficult to penetrate, to investigate for crime, even more difficult to penetrate for any kind of social service or whatever else they might need. They kept to themselves and kept things very tightly controlled. And things for the Jenny Task Force got worse. Because in the early 1990s, the KOG members convicted in the Phoenix auto theft case started to be released from prison. Richard LeBaron got out, and then Cynthia LeBaron got out. Just as the cops had feared, the cult was regrouping. So how much of your time and attention during that period was still focused on this case? And did you feel like the trail had kind of gone cold? Or what were you and Dick and others doing? Keeping the records together, keeping people from getting rid of cleaning files out actually having to bring files into my office and just stack them in my office so that people didn't go through and purge them. Talked a lot. We made sure that we kept in touch. All the time looking for anybody popping up because we felt there might be more murders at some point. I got the family recognized as a domestic terrorist case, which it was, but it was hard to convince people at the time that this was domestic terrorism, even though they had killed 30 people. And we just kept it going, kind of not really expecting or looking for a break. And all of a sudden, Dick Forbes gets this phone call from Cynthia LeBaron. It was May 1992. The Jenny Task Force received a jolt from the blue. Dick calls me on the phone and says, hey, I just got this phone call. I know it's from Cynthia because I recognize her voice. She says that she and Jessica, her sister, want to turn themselves in. They're willing to tell us everything and they want some protection. Cynthia was calling Dick from Monterey, Mexico. Cynthia told Dick things had happened in Mexico that made her and her sister fear for their lives. After leaving prison, Cynthia had done exactly what police feared she would do. She'd headed straight to Mexico to rejoin the KOG. But something had changed for Cynthia upon returning. She'd found a boyfriend outside the cult, which was against the rules, an infraction punishable by death. And that's why Cynthia said she was calling Dick Forbes. She wanted out. She was ready to tell all in exchange for protection. But the cops had mixed feelings. On one hand, 
this was the sort of break they'd been chasing for decades. On the other, considering the modus operandi of the cult, they couldn't help but worry that this was a trap. Because what they say to him on the phone is, we only trust you and Schwendemann, only you two. We'll meet you in Texas. It was always in the back of your mind, you know, hmm, is this a lure? He had to wonder. After all, this is what the cult of Herval LeBaron were known for, luring their prey out into the open. It had happened to Joel LeBaron, lured into that house in Ensenada. The villagers lured out of their homes by fire in Los Molinos. There was that botched attempt to kill Verlin at Rulin Allred's funeral. It had even been the way Dwayne and Jenny Chinoth had been lured out to Rena Street. A call about a washing machine that needed picking up. When this call came in 1992, that's why we thought, our turn. They're working a lure on us. Do we actually take them at their word that they want to talk to us? Are we smart enough to avoid being killed? But after such little progress, how could the cops turn down this opportunity to get inside the workings of the cult? How do we do this? Do we follow up? That's coming up after the break. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A in their offer to the Jenny Task Force, Cynthia and Jessica LeBaron had been clear. They were willing to spill all the cult secrets, and they wanted protection in return. But crucially, they were only prepared to deal with two members of the Jenny Task Force. They made this demand during that first phone call to Dick Forbes who passed on the message to David Schwindemann, the lead prosecutor on the Jenny Task Force. They're willing to tell us everything and they want some protection, but here's the catch. It's only you and me they'll trust. Dick Forbes, because he knew the case like no other, and David Schwindemann, because as the federal prosecutor, he had the most reach for accessing things like the Witness Protection Program. But even though the Jenny Task Force had now agreed to risk meeting Cynthia and Jessica, when it came to this demand for it to just be Dick and Dave at the meet, Schwendemann wasn't going to take the risk. I said, well, I, look, I'm willing to go with you. We'll go down there. We'll do this. But honestly, Dick, you got to get a hold of Burmeister and the guys that are working it from the Houston homicide side that were part of this group. And we got to go down there together. Having met John Burmeister, 
I can understand Schwendemann's instinct to bring him along too. Definitely the kind of guy you want to bring to a fight. And Burmeister was ready. Turns out he'd been waiting for something like this to go down. I had a feeling that sooner or later, they'd go overboard with their family problems and uh, somebody would come forward because they were either scared or they're just tired of living that way. The plan was to meet Cynthia and Jessica in Laredo, Texas. That city on the Mexican border where Ervil had crossed into the U.S. in handcuffs years before. I get the FBI involved. I get customs involved so that they can come across the bridge at Nuevo Laredo without being interfered with. And we're to meet them at a certain time on a certain day. The location for the meeting was agreed. The Howard Johnson, a motel downtown. A few days later, it was on. We fly to Laredo, Texas, May 1992. We go to the Holiday Inn. And we set up, and then there's this motel where we're supposed to meet these kids at 7 o'clock at night. We've got police backup as well, because we weren't sure how this was going to turn out. So they kind of clear out one part of the motel, and we go around, and the cops go to the door and knock on the door, the detectives, and there's no answer. You know, nobody comes to the door. And so immediately, they grab me by the back of the shirt, and pull me around the corner to get me out of the line of fire. And they all take positions in the shrubs and everything else with aim on this door because they figure it's a lure. You know, we've been sucked into this trap. And while this is all going on at the Howard Johnson's across the parking lot, there's this group that starts to gather at the windows. And in that group that's gathered at the windows is Cynthia and Jessica and their two Mexican boyfriends watching this whole thing develop down on the parking lot. In other words, it hadn't been a trap. There had been some kind of mix-up. And once the confusion had lifted in two separate hotel rooms, Forbes and Schwendemann began their first of a series of interrogations of Cynthia and Jessica LeBaron. And we go all night. This interview is just stone-cold chilling. Over the course of that night, and in further interviews over the coming days, Schwendemann and the others on the Jenny Task Force listened in astonishment as the veil of secrecy that had long shrouded the kingdom of God began to lift. And no sooner had they started sharing information with the cops than more cult informants began to surface. That normally happens once somebody turns it's like a domino effect before long, they all do. And basically, that's what happened. That's what happened with the other kids, you know. Danny was the next one that came across. Danny LeBaron, a kid just 16 years old at the time, he decided he'd had enough of the KOG. He called and said that he was concerned about himself and Richard. Richard LeBaron was 17 years old at the time of the four o'clock murders. Gabriella described him as fun and laid back, turned everything into a joke. Well, maybe not everything, because word was now out in the KOG that Richard and Danny were next in line for blood atonement. And uh, all the other family members loved him. Richard was their hero. So he was a big influence on the rest of them. When Richard eventually sat down with Burmeister, he was ready. Richard was straightforward as a witness. I mean, he'd tell you anything. He was 100%, let's go get him. I don't want nothing else to do with this. I'm going to be a son of perdition (laughs) and have a different lifestyle. Richard didn't hold back any details. He was a straight shooter. You can tell that from the get-go. This guy is not going to lie to me. And uh, he's going to tell me everything that he knows about everything. Richard's confession was perhaps the most significant so far. During the questioning, he told me what happened. He said to you, I killed, I'm the one who killed Dwayne and Jenny. Yeah, got pretty emotional. And, uh, he, he broke down and cried. 
I had to consider that he was a kid when it happened. You know, it's not like he was a full-grown man. But it, it, it did bother me that I was talking to the guy that killed the little girl. How did he feel about killing an eight-year-old? What did he tell you? He had to do it. He was ordered to. At that point, did he have remorse for it? Oh, absolutely. You know, and I'm sure he still does. By the time the cops were done, they had a timeline for the four o'clock murders, beat by beat. Doug Barlow had killed Eddie Marston, shooting him as he went to collect the washer dryer. Heber LeBaron had killed Mark Chinoth while he sat in his office chair, with Cynthia and Natasha waiting in the car outside. And Richard had shot and killed Dwayne and Jenny while Patricia sat waiting in the Chevy Silverado that had come barreling down Rena Street, trapping the two victims. Jenny was only killed because she was old enough to be a witness. In fact, Patricia had to send Richard back up the driveway to kill her. Patricia told Richard, she's old enough, she can be a witness. You gotta go kill her. But the cops weren't done with the confession they had so far from Cynthia, Danny, Jessica, and Richard. Next, they moved on to members of the cult who were still incarcerated. The ones still serving time for those grand theft auto charges in Arizona. Dave Schwendeman and John Burmeister went to see Patricia in jail in Phoenix. It was a slow process with her. I talked to her for hours and hours and hours, and I told her up front that you tell me whatever you want to. I'm not going to pressure you to talk about Houston's case unless you decide that you want to do it. I could tell that she was pressing me for information just as much as I was trying to press her for information. But she didn't know what was going on with the rest of the family. She'd been in isolation ever since the indictments came down. And we got to the point where we said, well, you know, Richard told us everything told us what you did, what he did, what everybody did. and said, I've got his confession. And then finally, she said, well, you got Richard. I'm pretty sure you know everything that happened. I might as well go Richard's route. Richard's route meant full disclosure. And this wasn't just the corroboration of the testimony of her siblings. She told them things that were even more shocking. And I want to warn you here that this next piece of tape is about as distressing as a story as I've heard. It's one minute, 40 seconds long. So skip ahead if you don't want to hear it. Patricia had a baby, a little boy, as I recall, by Heber, her brother. And the baby was sickly and was crying all the time. Heber had told her to do something about the child. You know, the child is screaming too much. Just do something with the child. And Patricia tried, but she couldn't make the child go quiet. She said, we need to take the child to a doctor. Of course, taking somebody to the doctor would have given away a lot of what the family was about. They needed to keep to themselves and keep by themselves. So going to a hospital was not something that anybody really wanted to do. But Patricia eventually prevailed on Heber to take the child to a hospital. So Heber loaded Patricia himself and the baby into the pickup truck, and they began to drive towards Hermosillo. Patricia's holding the baby, and the baby's crying. They get partway to Hermosillo in the middle of nowhere. Heber pulls the truck over. He said, give me the baby. She says, no. Heber said, give me the baby and get out of the truck. I had no choice. I gave him the baby. The baby's crying. I walk away from the truck and the baby stops crying. I go back to the truck and the baby's blue and Heber says, here. We then drive into Hermosillo. We drive through the entrance to the emergency room at the hospital in Hermosillo. And he tells me to throw the baby out. So I do. And they drive off. It was the only time I saw her show any emotion. And with this tiny tear that trickled down her face, at the end of that conversation, We had to get out of the room. After years of desperately trying to get the cult to talk, they had finally heard enough. 
I can only imagine how it must have felt to hear all these confessions. Dave Schwendeman, like myself, being someone raised as a Mormon. You're hearing this bizarre tale that is so close to what you were raised and believed and everything else. But it's flipped on its head. It's a 180. I mean, to commit these murders. That's their mission. And of course, Schwendemann was hearing information on cases he'd been working on for years. Not just the four o'clock murders. Like the open investigation into Dan Jordan's murder. Patricia described for us that Patricia and Heber drove up from Mexico and were told where the campsite was by the kids. They knew when they were going to be there. They knew where the campsite was. And according to Patricia, she and Heber waited down on a road until they could see what was going on. And then Heber went up into the place where Dan was doing his stuff and shot him. And you remember Leo Evanick, that guy who killed Gabriella's big brother, Arthur? Leo, who had tried to steal the kids with the Rios brothers? Well, it turns out, after he was driven off... Heber shot him 10 times, shot him running away. Patricia drove, but Heber shot him. They took his body, put it in Leo's vehicle, and drove the vehicle off and buried Leo somewhere. But despite all these confessions, all these new deaths and leads from the cult members who are now talking, the decision was made that apart from the four o'clock murders, none of these crimes would move forward to trial. The cops were going all in on a conviction for the Texas shootings. We went with the Texas murders because we had better evidence. We actually had physical evidence that we could use. We had a story that stuck together. And we had people that were in the family that were willing to testify. And so the Jenny Task Force was finally ready to move forward with charges. But Richard LeBaron was singled out. We made a plea arrangement with Richard and used him as a witness in the trial. Cynthia, Jessica, and Danny were now in the Federal Witness Protection Program, providing testimonies that would keep them out of prison too. But for the rest of the KOG suspects? Everybody got indicted. Patricia was already in jail. Eber was already in jail. Barlow was already in jail and Phoenix. They weren't much of a problem. That left Tarsa and Aaron, the last two members of the KOG leadership still at large. But surely it was just a matter of time before those two loose ends would be tied up. And finally, the killing would end once and for all. That was just around the next corner, right? Right? I remember just having this really strong conclusion in my head. I was like, look, God, if you want me to go and build the Koji, I'm going to do it. I'm ready. I was so ready. Just tell me, and I'll go. That's coming up on the final episode of Deliver Us from Herbal. Deliver Us from Herbal is hosted by me, Jesse Hyde, and written and reported by me, Leona Hamid, and David Waters. Production from Leona Hamid and David Waters, Sean Glynn and Max O'Brien are executive producers. Lena Chang and Megan Oyinka are researchers. Mariana Gongora is our field producer. Fact-checking by Danya Suleiman and Sona Avakian. Production management from Cherie Houston, Frankie Taylor, and Charlotte Wolf. Austin Mitchell is our creative director of production. Michael Lee Rao is our managing editor. Gavin Haynes is our head of development. Willard Foxton is our creative director of development. Sound design, mixing, and scoring by Nicholas Alexander and Daniel Kempson. Music supervision by Nicholas Alexander and David Waters. Our music is composed by Julian Lynch. 
Special thanks to Scott Anderson, Scott Carrier, Del Van Atta, Pippa Smith, Saskia Edwards, Matt O'Mara, Katrina Norvell, and Beth Ann Macaluso. Oren Rosenbaum, Shelby Shankman, and all the team at UTA. For more from Novel, visit novel.audio. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.